Mark chapter 4. And as you know that we are continuing in our study of the gospel of Mark, and we're in chapter 4 looking at some parables. But remember, a parable is addressing an immediate uh, application to those hearers that Jesus was telling the story to. He's not just telling stories to tell stories, but he's doing that to convey some teaching. And one of those, two of those areas, one is the kingdom of God is the theme in these parables or these stories. They give us insight on the kingdom of God. They also give us insight on the uh, subjects of the kingdom. Who are the subjects of the kingdom? We are. We're the citizens of the kingdom. So how are we, we to live? How are we to function under the king in the kingdom of God? So as you read, whether it's the parables here or you read them in uh, the other gospel accounts, keep that in mind. What is it teaching me about the kingdom of God? And we talk about the kingdom of God, we're talking about the rule of God, God's presence uh, upon the earth through the victory and the uh, uh, a work of Christ, that there is a uh, twofold aspect of God's presence and his kingdom. There's an already aspect in which Jesus is now presently ruling and reigning. His presence through the Holy Spirit is, is among us, and there is, there is a present uh, rulership of Christ seated on the right hand of the Father, the Bible tells us. But there's also a coming consummation in which Jesus will physically, literally return back. And his kingdom will be established on the earth. A lot of theories of how, when, all that's going to be. And we can kind of get lost in the weeds of all those details. But here's the bottom line. There's universal agreement of those that love God's word is that Jesus is returning and will come back. We all can say amen and agree with that. So when we talk about these parables or these stories, Jesus is giving some insight in regards to the kingdom of God and how we who compose and make up that kingdom are to live. So if you have your Bibles, let's look at chapter 4. And he, Jesus said to them, is a lamp brought into, is brought in to be put under a basket or under a bed and not on a stand. For nothing is hidden except to be made manifest, nor is anything secret except to come to light. If anyone has ears to hear, let him here. Let's pray. Gracious God, we are so desirous to have you speak to us this morning through your word. Lord, open our ears, open our hearts this morning. Lord, convict us to areas in our life that are not in conformity with your purpose for us as followers of Christ. Lord, confirm by your word areas in which we're struggling and we're praying about And, uh, Lord, convince us that we belong to you, that assurance that your Holy Spirit brings us, Lord, as we seek and desire, Lord, to follow you and being obedient to your word. So, Lord, we invite you to speak to us through your holy word this morning. We ask this in Jesus' name, and everybody said in agreement, amen. As I said earlier... Mark is selective in the details that he gives. And one of the ways to kind of sometimes compare in the, light, in the timeline of Christ that we're going through in the Gospel of Mark, we come to a place that Matthew gives us a lot more information about, and that is the Sermon on the Mount. Everybody heard of the Sermon on the Mount? That's uh, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. Matthew gives us a lot of detail as far as what Jesus taught 
during this period. Mark just gives us a few little postcards. Matthew gives us lots of information, lots of letters, lots of material concerning that. So just by way of taking this exact teaching that we have in Mark and looking over to Matthew to the same event, to the same teaching, we gain a few little details. And I think I have Matthew 5, verses 14 through 16 on the screen that you can just look up there. Same, same timeline, same place, but Matthew just gives us a little more uh, elaboration concerning what Jesus taught. Jesus said, same event, but Matthew records a little more. You are, Jesus says, the light of the world. A city set on a hill that cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, in the same way, here's the application. Let your light do what? Shine before others, so that they may see your good works and do what? Glorify your Father who is in heaven. So that helps us and gives us a little more information as far as trying to understand this particular passage. Remember last week we uh, looked at the parable that uh, is referred to as the parable of the soils. And uh, some people might come in and hear that and think, boy, we're teaching agriculture in the church. No. Again, it was an earthly common story. I just always had this picture. Uh, if you want to go back to the beginning of chapter 4, and we're not going to re- rehash it, but Jesus is on the shoreline. Great crowds are following from the beginning here in chapter 1, 2, 3, and 4. We see crowds always clamoring and coming after Jesus. Remember at one point they couldn't even get any more into a house. Had to bring a guy through a roof. So crowds are are coming and and it reached a point that Jesus here at the beginning of chapter 4 had to get into a boat, borrowed somebody's boat and kind of got out into the water a little bit so that he could teach the crowd from just kind of uh, beyond the shoreline. Now water... Is a, is a natural amplification. So that helped in his voice being carried to this great crowd. And he told this story, and I just thought maybe, you know, he looked off at a farm and saw this farmer scattering seed and said the kingdom of God is like, like that guy doing what he's doing because he's using, there's no PowerPoints. That was his PowerPoint, all right? That was his visuals to help understand the kingdom of God. And so he gave this story about how seed is thrown on different kinds of ground. Hard soil, rocky soil, shallow soil. But the last is, he said, some seed, using a natural story, falls into good soil. And what happens? It begins to grow. It develops a root system. And it begins to develop as a healthy plant. People are, you know, standing around scratching their heads thinking, well, what does that mean? And he explains, if you read the rest of the, the, there in uh, chapter 4, he goes on to explain, not to everybody in the crowd, but he goes on to explain to his disciples or apostles what he means. And he goes through and explains how the seed is the word of God. And the soil represents how people hear and receive the word of the Lord. Some shallow, some you can't even get beyond the, the ground. They're, just, they're not receptive. They have a heart and heart. But the last falls onto good hearers who receive the word. They begin to follow Christ. They begin to see their lives transformed as they walk in obedience to Christ. And that's a picture of good seed falling on good soil. So that's where he ends 
when he picks up this idea about a lamp. You put oil in it and a little floating wick, that's what they used in their household to light up the house. A lamp takes that lamp or that light and it's supposed to light up their house and they don't light it up and say, quick, go, go put it under the bed. and We can go in there and peek at the light. I mean, he, he gives a little absurdity there that, no, when you, when you light the lamp, you put it up high or on a shelf because the purpose of the light is to what? Break out the darkness of the room. Common sense, right? So he's using that analogy or that picture to say you are, as we saw in Matthew, it's a connect, connect the same story, you're the light of the world. You reflect the light of a transformed life of Jesus. So by the same way that you use a lamp in your house, you don't hide it, you put it in a place where it can shine, and Jesus is making the connection in the same way you as light, living in a world of darkness, by virtue of you making yourself known in the sense of, 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 the, of a life who's been changed by Christ, you are a light in the midst of darkness, okay? And so Jesus says, you're the light of the world. You need to do what lights do, and lights are to shine. Now, the Bible uses light as a metaphor for truth. I'll give you a couple of uh, examples. In Psalm 36, 9, For with you is the fountain of life. In your light do we see light. Psalm 119, verse 105, Your word, you know this, is a lamp to my feet, and a what? A light to my path. First Thessalonians 5.5, 5, For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or darkness. So just as it uses light to use as a metaphor to speak of truth and the work of God, it uses night and darkness uh, to speak of evil or the, uh, the opposite of God's Truth. In this passage, Jesus is using light to refer to the work of the gospel. You are the light of the world. You reflect the work of the gospel in your life. And what is, why, what is the reason that God has transformed your life by the gospel truth is not to be hidden under a bed or hidden off in your basement on the internet. No, you're to be the light that is to shine out in this world of darkness. So it's not coincidental that it follows what Jesus talked about, seed falling on good ground, because the next thought here about this light gives evidence of that seed that has fallen on good ground. Let me say that a different way. The evidence of a life who's been transformed by the gospel will naturally be a light of a transformed life. And if they are not, then perhaps that seed or the word fell on shallow or rocky soil. Because a person who does not have a desire to live and be seen as a light of Christ by their life, by the transformation, we are a new creation in Christ, Jesus said that should naturally follow the person who is genuinely received the word of the Lord in salvation. Does that make sense? So Jesus is saying, here's an example of someone who is 
received the word and it has fallen on good ground or good soil. So those who have genuinely received the gospel of Christ, we might use the word, uh, you know, sometimes we say as someone who has been saved, been redeemed, listen to this carefully, they will naturally or supernaturally feel the weight of grace by what they have received and cannot help but make that light shine to share and to pass on to others. J.C. Ryle, a man who lived many, many years back, always remember this quote. J.C. Ryle says, The highest form of selfishness is for the man or woman to be, to be content to go to heaven all by themselves. Did you catch that? Did you catch that? I'm going to read it again. The highest form of selfishness is the man or woman who's content to go to heaven alone. You see, the child of God who has genuinely come into a saving relationship with Christ, their life is going to be evidenced by the change. Now, it may come in different forms for different people. Some people, it's very dramatic and very quick over, sometimes it's a process over time. One thing, I know we're all in process. Are you still in process? I'm still in process. All right. So again, it's not attaining to some perfection. But the point is, like Jesus gave another picture of a, of a tree. He said, a tree is known by its fruit. You can't see the root system, but you can see what the tree is producing. A life that is producing death and destruction is probably because there is no root system or the root system is corrupted. So we're not going around judging who's in or who's out. It's just Jesus is saying, real simply, a life who has been changed by Christ will give evidence. A tree is known by its fruit. Now, here's the bottom line. We would no more keep the truth of God's saving grace secret or private than keeping, and Jesus would keep with his picture, using a light and keeping it hidden in our house. Jesus said a light is to be seen, is to be made visible. The responsibility, what Jesus is reminding us, and reminding his hearers there, is the responsibility of a disciple, of a follower of Christ, is to be obedient in taking and caring and illuminating the message of God's good news, his saving grace, and telling others about this grace that we say is so amazing. And if we're not interested in telling somebody about this grace that we've been changed with that's so amazing that it might be that somehow the truth of God's Word hasn't quite connected or sunk into our life. It's uh, verse 25. It won't be on the screen, but if you have your Bibles, Jesus reminds us of the principle of being faithful, verse 25 of Mark 4. For to the one who has, more will be given And from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. So there is a principle that Jesus gives us of being faithful in utilizing what and where we are and what we've been given. Um, You may say, well, wait a minute. I'm, I'm no Billy Graham. You can't expect that of every believer. Of course not. All of us have been put in a place of God's sovereignty to influence somebody, okay? 
And it's being faithful of being a light where he has put us. Now, sometimes when we are uh, hearing this and we're contemplating and thinking about, about opening our lives up to talk about Christ or the gospel, immediately we are confronted with a lot of fear, fear of rejection, failure. We might lose the relationship. Uh, I can't share about Christ because I don't know enough. Fear often uh, grips us in such a way that we, we're not shining when we should be shining the light of Christ in our life. We're hiding it under the bed. Before I, we get into some just practical examples of how I believe we can do this, let me just point something out that I noticed last night as I was just looking over this again. And I think it's just, I thought it was interesting. In chapter 4, chapter 4 begins with Jesus' parable of the sower. That's a picture of how God spreads the word. You with me? Okay? Spreads the word. That's God's job, right? The seed falls. There's nothing wrong with the seed. Problem is the soil. God is sowing the seed of the word, the gospel. That's God's work. And then he goes into talking about you are the light. You're to shine. That's our job. And then in the very next part, Jesus finishes out this section of teaching by talking about in verse 26 how the kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. He's back to scattering seed. And he talks about how he sleeps and he rises like a farmer and the seed sprouts and grows. And look what it says in verse 27 in the latter part. He knows not how. That's again going back to the word of God doing something that the man, the human farmer, he doesn't know how that all works. He just knows he puts seed in the ground, it grows. Okay? And then he goes into Jesus talking about the mustard seed. What does he say? Verse 30, what can we compare the kingdom of God to? So he's teaching about the work of the kingdom of God. So right there in chapter 4 in these verses, we see the sovereignty of God. God is the sower of the seed. Problem's not the seed, it's the soil, the human heart, and how it receives God says, you're the light, you're to shine, you're, you're, to, you're to have a role in this. But then he goes into that the work of God may seem slow, like that farmer that's out there watching. You know, I remember one time I planted something, I would just look at the little plant every day to say, see if I saw something grow and realize I could sit there all day and look at that thing and it's not going any faster. And so like the farmer, you know, he sleeps, he does his job, but somehow it grows and he doesn't know how. And Jesus said, that's what the kingdom of God is like. It's like a mustard seed. It may seem really small and tiny. But because it is packed with the purpose of God, it can't help do what it's going to do, and it's going to grow. In fact, he says it's going to grow to the point that everybody's going to seek shelter under its shade, that the kingdom of God is going to grow and spread. Think about the work of the gospel from Acts until now. A handful, 11, they added, you know, 12. One of them bailed, and, and, and uh, Judas, he uh, was a betrayer. But imagine when Jesus said to go into all the world, and he's talking to 12 guys. One of them he knows is going to be a traitor. And they're thinking, what do you mean going to all the world? Their world never went beyond 10 miles. That was their world. And look at the mustard seed of the gospel from the time of the resurrection till today. That mustard seed has grown. 
How has that happened? God has made it happen. How did God use it in His sovereignty? He used obedience of disciples by doing what? Go into all the world and do what? Teach, preach the gospel, right? Do you see how it perfectly balances God's sovereignty and the believer's responsibility? There's no contradiction there. That's free. I won't charge you for that today. Vance Havner an old Baptist preacher, I love to see some of his quotes, reminds us about our work in evangelism or being light in the gospel. He says, every Christian is a postmaster for God. Their duty is to deliver the good news from above. That's all we do. God does the work. Our job is to be light. And how do we do that? What does it mean to make our light shine? Philippians chapter 2, and that should be on the screen. Philippians chapter 2 Verses 14 and 15. Look at this. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. Are we living in a crooked and twisted generation? Absolutely. But he says, what? Among whom you, what? Shine as lights of the world, holding fast the word of life. We are kind of, uh, sometimes we in America are very, um, what do I want to say, spoiled, uh, maybe that's a good word. Uh, we have this perspective that if we consider persecution in America, if somebody gives us the finger on the interstate, and I'm not saying you're the number one driver, you can figure that out. Uh, or we have a fish bumper sticker, or, or whatever it is, or somebody... I mean, we... But do you realize in the United States of America, do you realize that we live in, in the, the most privileged nation that, that has ever been on the face of the earth? And yet, why is it that we have such struggles concerning the gospel and our living out the gospel? I mentioned to you the phenomenal growth of the church after the resurrection to the day... But do you realize that the stories and the things that we read about in the New Testament, none of them lived in a culture or a society that was politically sympathetic to their cause. They were faithful and obedient, and the gospel advanced in the midst of absolute hostility and persecution. One example in our modern time that always stands out is in China. The communists took... Uh, in the revolution around 1945-1946, Mao Zedong, the communist revolution in China. Around the mid-60s, maybe early 70s, they had what was called the Cultural Revolution. That was even a more intense persecution. The point being is, is that from the time the communists, like other communist nations, uh, they sought to destroy and drive the church into the ground. But you know what? It's just like a nail. The harder you drive it down, the stronger it gets. Jesus said, upon this rock, I will build my church. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. That scripture in uh, Matthew 18 that Jesus quotes when he says, upon this rock, he's the rock, I will build my church. That's an offensive. I don't mean I'm offended because you snarl at me. I mean... There's defense and offense, you know, in, in, in sports. 
It's not a defensive posture like, we're just going to hold the gates and the gates of hell aren't going to overrun us. That is not what Jesus is saying. He's saying the gates of hell shall not prevail. In other words, the church will become an offensive and overriding force upon the earth that the gates of hell will collapse because of the advancement of the gospel. Now remember, mustard seed. The gospel advances... Sad to say, because I'm not into persecution. Anybody into persecution? If you are, we, we got a little class afterwards. We'll persecute you. But history proves that the church grows and thrives in suffering and hardship. That is the polar opposite with what is 90% on television and in a quote-unquote Christian bookstore today. Because they don't want you, that, that's not the message that fits into American Christianity. But that's the gospel. And that's the way the work of the kingdom of God operates. So when we talk about letting our light shine, let me just kind of give some parameters here. One, you, you've got to turn your light on. <laughs> you've got to get out there. It says that your light should shine before others, Matthew 5, 16. It should shine before others. It's not just accumulating a lot of light in your living room. You know, you go to seminars and, and uh, man, you've been on the courses. You've got notebooks on seminars and training. You've got notebooks on notebooks. You've just got tapes and CDs. You can tell how far I've lived. Tapes and now CDs. Uh, but uh, I didn't say records. But you just got all this stuff. But are you letting your, oh, I let my light shine. The cat sees it. No, you're to let your light shine before others. You've got you to get out there. You've got to cultivate some relationships. One of the things that happens, and there's a good part of this, but there's a negative, that when a person becomes a believer, there's a dynamic, obviously, that changes because we are translated, the Bible says, from light to darkness. So naturally, we are going to start being around people of light. We're going to be around people that edify and we can grow with. That's a good thing. But yet the Bible does not say that just because you become a believer, you abandon all your unsaved friends. Now, if they are people that are, you know, making it difficult for you to walk uh, the Christian life and to live a life of integrity of the gospel, you, need, you know, there is a biblical form of, of separation there. But all of a sudden now, you don't trade one group of friends and totally abandon all your other friends... No, you're to cultivate those relationships. And it doesn't mean all of a sudden now you go to your neighbor over the barbecue and you start carrying your large print black Thompson chain Bible, King James, of course, and bring it to the barbecue because you want them to know and you got your Jesus shirts and you got your stickers on your car. You know what a better witness is? Maybe when you borrowed his lawnmower, you took it back better than you got it when you said you'd bring it back. Hello? You want to be a Christian in school? Be a great student. Be on time. Do the assignments. Don't use religion and Christianity as a mask to be dysfunctional and dumb and think you're being persecuted. You see, sometimes we think that being a light means us being some weirdo. And listen, Christians are weirdos. I know some Christian weirdos. You're probably thinking, yeah, we're looking at one right now. 
No, I mean, I know. Hey, we rebuke that spirit. Be honest. Sometimes, I mean, pastoring almost 30 years, some of the nuttiest and fruitiest people have not come out of cereal boxes. They've come into our churches. Under the guise of spirituality. Do you think that's attractive? Do you think that's light that draws people? Instead of being a light, it's a strobe light. Gosh, I can't, you know. We don't want to be strobe lights. We want to be light that illuminates when people are having trouble. Jesus is getting ready to talk. Well, next week we'll look at Jesus uh, and the, the, the disciples in the storm. We need to be lighthouses that when your neighbor and friends are in the storm, there's a light of safety they can be drawn to. Are you that light? You got to be out there. You got to be countercultural. The Bible says, do not love this world nor the things it offers you. For when you love the world, you do not have the love of the Father in you. If the light is dull, maybe it's because of the accumulation of the dirt around the bulb that it no longer illuminates the light and purity of Christ that it once did. And it's always pointing people back to Christ. Scripture we read earlier in Matthew says, let your light shine so that they, people outside the kingdom, may see your good works and give glory to your Father. It's all about pointing people to Christ. Let me give you four real quick practical ways to do this. Four just quick practical ways. Because it's easy to just kind of keep this all in the abstract and just kind of keep it all out there. Here's, here's so, these are just going to be so practical you can start now, today. Okay? Number one, how do you be a light? Number one, be careful what you say. Words matter. The Bible says the tongue is a restless evil full of deadly poison. James 3.8. Words in our speech, the Bible says we are to take seriously what we say. Maybe you had a parent or somebody tell you, if you don't have anything nice to say, don't say it at all. You know what? That's not bad advice. Just because you're a Christian doesn't mean you have to put your opinion on everything on Facebook. (laughs) Oh, no, you don't want me to. Ephesians 4.29, maybe we should put this on around our house. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for the building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear it. So many times, talking about Facebook, I have wanted to put something on there, and the Holy Spirit said, delete it's, one of the, it's, it's like the Lord is saying, I know you're a fool, but don't blab it all over the world and let everybody else know you're a fool. You know. How about number two? Consider, you're going to love this one, consider your entertainment. Where do you go for fun? What do you indulge in in movies and television shows and Netflix? And let me just say this. There is an idea and a mindset in some of using grace, quote-unquote, 
as an excuse to indulge in things that are not edifying or strengthening you in your spiritual growth. Well, I'm under grace. So you just can live like hell because you're under grace? That's, that is a phony, false view of grace. Now, I realize the other, there's other extremes, but don't use grace as a means to indulge in activity and behavior because, well, hey, we're all forgiven, we're under grace. Paul said something that I think we really need to take heed to. And it's in 1 Corinthians 6.12. He said, all things, this is Paul talking about. He says, all things are lawful to me. In other words, I can do anything I want. But then he says, but not all things are helpful to me. All things are lawful to me, he says. But I will not be enslaved by anything. Then he goes on again in uh, chapter 10, the same book. And he repeats it again. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Paul's saying, I'm under grace. I'm the grace guy. I can do a lot of things. But not all those things are good that build me up and edify me. And they don't necessarily edify and build others up. John MacArthur, I wish I couldn't put, didn't put it on the screen, but just listen. Please don't check out. This is important. If you're, if you're prone to check out, let me just say this boldly. Holy Spirit is not wanting you to hear what I'm saying. And it's not because I'm saying it. It's because this is, I believe, principles of guidance in God's word that as your shepherd you need to pay attention to. Listen to what John MacArthur says. He says, as new creatures... That's what a born-again believer is, a new creature living under the authority of Christ. Believers have been rescued from the corruption of sin and set aside for righteousness. Our new nature is no longer compatible with the world. The transforming work of salvation makes us strangers in a lost and dying society where we are at odds with the very things that we formerly loved. The Lordship of Christ forces us to denounce the impurity and worldliness that once informed our character and occupied our hearts. Consider what entertains you. Paul said in Romans 12, too, do not be conformed to this world. J.B. Phillips, who paraphrased, says, Don't let the world squeeze you into its mold. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern the will of God. A lot of believers have no discernment. They do things and engage in things and say things in such a lack of spiritual discernment of knowing and being able to discern that this is good for me, this is healthy for me, and this is destructive for me. And later down the road, they wonder why why everything is spinning off the wheels because there was no discernment of the will of God. Colossians 3.16 says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Does that mean we're all, all of a sudden now you're going to start singing to me? 
No, you can if you want to. It just means that our minds and hearts are feeding upon the Word and enjoying the presence of God that when you poke us, what's going to come out is life. You ever say or do something, and don't raise your hands because all of us are guilty. You say or do something, and you say, I don't know where that came from. You just caught me off guard. Hello? You bet you have. And you're glad nobody was recording it for what you said. Not supposed to be caught off guard. So full of life that what you're dwelling on. See, it's easy to be religious here. It's what you're dwelling on. It's what you're feeding on. And your entertainment is what you're feeding your mind with. And if you just can't wait to make the next Saw 5 movie... You're feeding upon all of that evil trash that's just feeding evil into your soul. Now, am I going to give you a list of what movies to go to? Of course not. But you should be able to discern what is good and what is acceptable and is in conforming to the building up of my life. Thank you for your excitement. I appreciate that. You're going to love this third one. I told you these are going to be practical. Use social media wisely. Use social media wisely. People are watching what you post. And I am amazed at folks who post inappropriate things that are just shameful for a Christian to post. Shameful. And I'm, I'm surprised that parents allow their kids to do it. Is that being old fogey? No. What am I saying? I'm giving you principles of life that is to be a light. And if we become so clouded by darkness in our own life that people can't see the light, people make judgments when some of the nonsense that people post on their Facebook. Am I putting other people down? You ever, had, you ever responded or did something on Facebook and it just drew the crazies out in their response? Like, I didn't know I had so many Kool-Aid drinkers on my, as my friends, you know? What is your motive? Don't be rude. Be a Christian. Number four, think of others. How do I be light in the midst of darkness? Consider the needs of others. And am I, what am I doing, whether it's my unsaved neighbor whether it's the two women that are married who are live next door to me, how can I be Christian? How can I be a light of Jesus? By going around and pounding a Bible, sticking anonymous tracts in their mailbox? No. just means I'm friendly and nice and pray one day God gives me an opportunity to talk, and, and he has. Well, I want you to know I'm a preacher. I pastor a church, so I just want you to know. Yeah, that's going to open. That's going to really enliven the conversation, right? <laughs> you're just nice. You're kind. There's something they need. You get there and you can bring their trash cans in. You're just kind. You're just neighborly. You're, you're showing the love of Christ and letting your light shine, praying that as you let your light shine in your life, that God is at work with that soil and the seed. 
and maybe you won't get an opportunity to take it further, but maybe their impression of a Christian now has changed from some of the goofballs they watch on CNN on a Fox News that all of a sudden they see a live Christian who is kind, generous, meek, humble. They just see somebody who's real. Maybe their impression when they have a conversation with a person at work, all of a sudden they say, oh, I know what a Christian is. That's like so-and-so I met or my neighbor or whatever. And they're now open for the next watering or the next phase of God's work. You with me? Encourage. Don't be critical. Be patient. Give others the benefit of the doubt. If you hear gossip in your workplace, distance yourself from it. Don't engage in it. Change the subject. One writer said something that I always remember. But one of the principles he said is seek first to understand before trying to be understood. What's our job? Be a light. Be a light. Light, like a star, reflects, doesn't it? Reflects. Let's reflect the reality and transforming grace of God that has affected our lives.